Father, thank you for this day. I pray that you would again be with us as we go through the last chapter of Leviticus this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the the redemptive work that you've done for us in Jesus to give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what the Spirit would say this morning. We pray that once again you would work among us, transforming us little by little into the image of Jesus. We know that it is a constant work of yours. We pray that it's a constant work of ours. And that this morning would add to that and push us further toward Him, forsaking all else. We thank you for the body of Christ and the gift that we have in each other, that you are calling to yourself a people redeemed by the blood of Christ to reflect Him rightly. We pray that we encourage one another to do that. Be with us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. And help us to focus. (laughs) All right. We are on Leviticus 27. I'd like to take a minute to stop, to pause, and to contemplate the fact that we have gone through, or will have by the end of today, 27 chapters of Old Testament law. If you'd like to applaud, that's fine. Um, That's a big, big deal in today's age. uh, Whenever um, we live in a a culture in our church, not Sylvania in particular, but just Big C Church, that tends to view a separation between the Testaments. And there's there's just an under... I don't want to say an express understanding, but just an assumed thing that the Old Testament is for old Israel and has nothing to do with us because we're post-cross, we're in Christ. And you kind of get that impression with the way it ends. I mean, I would think that Leviticus would end on some huge, and the Lord, you know, after the blessings and curses thing, he just you know, thunders down, and this, you have another mountain kind of thing that we saw in Exodus 20. Not so. It's actually really kind of subdued the way the book ends. Um, this is the last third of what we saw that began in chapter 25. And we talked about the chiastic structure, the 25. 26 and 27, and in the middle was 26 with the blessings and the curses that kind of emphasized the, the fruits of obedience and the cost of disobedience. We saw that last week. Our chapter today actually ends Leviticus by setting out the means by which the Israelites could redeem certain gifts made by vows. It ends on vows. Um... This chapter deals with redemption options for various objects that may be vowed. It's first, humans, second, animals, and third, property. It's very... Let's end on vows. I don't know. Why do you think that would be? Uh, Let's look at it. Let's read... uh, Let's start with uh, 1 through 8, and we'll work through it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, 
Then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver, and for a female the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is sixty years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be fifteen shekels, and for a female ten shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what, what the vower can afford. Why end Leviticus this way? What's going on here? What's a vow? Let's start with that. What is a vow? We've kind of gone over this before. When you make a vow in the sanctuary, what are you doing? It's a covenant promise. It's a covenant promise. Is it mandatory to make a vow? No. No. Why would someone make a vow? Well, they, the, the land, you know, they had the, uh, the 50-year reset. And so maybe they needed to pledge themselves to work for somebody else and make a vow to do so. Okay, this is generally, yeah, yes, that would be a, a contractual indentured servant kind of promise. What's in view here is more of a vow to God. A vow to um, give a gift of service or produce or animal or child. Think of Samuel. Um, and there's a way for them if they... Usually someone would do that. It, well, let's take Samuel, for example. Why, why was Samuel given to the temple? To the tabernacle at that time. What was who was praying? Hannah. Why was she praying? She wanted a kid. She couldn't have one, and so she pours her heart out to God so much so, in such an emotional stance, that Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk and rebuked her. Right? He should have been working on his own sons on that issue, but we'll we'll deal with this. So he rebukes Hannah for being. Too emotional in church, charismatic or whatever. So she's there at the, at the altar. He says, what's the problem? And she says, I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord because I want a child. And I'm vowing to the Lord, give me a child and I will give him to you. That's the vow. So generally, a vow is, I'm desperate for God to do something. And, and, and in order, I will pledge an offering for him to do that for him to do this special thing. That's the vow. Well, you run into situations sometimes where <clears throat> I had, a, I had a, a mentor attorney when I first started. He's still a really good friend of mine. And he told me early on, because legal work is business, you have to think of it in terms of business, and in any service industry this is the case, the value for legal services greatly diminishes after the services are rendered. Right? Once it's done, the pressure's off. I've got what I wanted. I'll put you on the back burner 
to, to do what I said, right? So many times what would happen in these vows, many times, sometimes, the provision was made for this possibility. They make a vow. Gosh, I really promised way too much for what I was asking God to do, right? Let me get out of this somehow, because that's a really good donkey. I trained him well, whatever. And so the provision is made, or this is a really good servant that I'm lending, that I'm renting out to the, to the priesthood. The provision was made for them to redeem those gifts. What do you think the redemption price is going to be? Well, the valuation is set out here. The valuation 1 through 8 um, talks about the, the, the valuation of different um, sexes of people that are given to the temple. Uh, the valuation of different ages that are given to the temple. Does it bother... I'll just ask the girls. Does it bother you that the temple valuation is 20 shekels less for a woman than it is for a man? It's just questionable. It's questionable. <laughs> Why do you, Is God sexist? You're going to tell us. 30. <laughs> eh. Is that what's going on? What's going on here? What's going on? Why would he value men higher than women? Is there a lesser intrinsic worth in Hebrew society for women than men? Because, you know, all those ancients were just chauvinists. But what was required at the temple? What was the difference in, in roles for men and women at the temple? That's a good question. I guess it depends on what tribe they came from. Because Levitical servants, and we're talking the type of slavery that we talked about before in chapter 25, not, not uh, Egypt, Rome, and U.S. and current Middle East slavery, where it's all chattel slavery. We're talking about indentured servanthood. These are people who have sold themselves to pay off debt, and they're going to be released in Jubilee, or can't have the, the means of redemption. We've, we've talked about all that. The type of service they would do would, would be to, to attend to the priests, for, for needs that they had, you know, go get my donkey, go do this, whatever. i got to travel to this town. So they have personal assistant kind of stuff, and, and possibly some field work around the cities of that were priestly cities, possibly, but they're not there yet, right? I mean, this is all anticipating what's going to go on when they get in the land. But a lot of it is going to be agrarian stuff, agricultural work. So why do you think they'd value a man higher than a woman? Objectively, and I like that word, they can carry, they can do more physical labor, right? Generally speaking, a woman is not going to be able to carry as much as a man or plow as far as a man unless you're my sister-in-law. What if she feels like a man that day? No, no, no. So it doesn't matter. Objectively, we're talking about, not on the fields. Um, my sister-in-law is a tank. She's a, she does, she's a professional bodybuilder, and she could out-carry me any day of the week. That's fine. Her husband is also a professional bodybuilder, and there's no way she could catch up to him. I don't care how hard she works, and she works out hard. You, you may have seen videos. She likes to post them a lot. A lot. So, but my, my brother-in-law 
is like five times her size and is all muscle. And there's no way, she, I don't care how much protein she eats, she's not going to catch, her body is different. Now, she's obviously more fit than I am. I concede it. But my general body makeup is, could, if I put in the effort, exceed her. I could, well, I couldn't get like Jeffrey and look like Captain America, but I could, I could surpass her. It ain't going to happen in this life, but it's, the gen genetically it's possible. So I don't, I don't want us to get stuck on the valuation. And I'm spending a lot of time on this because of the culture we live in. I don't want us to get stuck on the, 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 the gender valuation idea here. That's not the issue. The issue is productivity. Who, can, who generally is going to do... We see the same thing with ages, right? Is the value of, a, of, a, of an infant to five less than a male that's 20 to 60? Well, based on commercial productivity, yes, it doesn't mean they're less of a person. Does that make sense? Think of it in, in terms of 60 and above, how they value them. And yet the culture in Israel is one that really esteems the elderly. That doesn't mean that they're, that they're going to produce as much on the farm, <laughs> but it does mean that we value their wisdom um, but this is a commercial understanding. It's not an, an intrinsic worth understanding. So I just want to spend a little time on that so that we understand what's going on. Can you just clarify a few things? So more Maybe. about the redemptions here. So is it, you know, I made a vow to somebody, but I didn't, I didn't keep my vow, so then I have to pay that? Or is it, oh, I'm giving you my son to serve, so I pay 20 shekels of silver or whatever? I, I think what's, what's I think what's going on. We'll see this as the, as the chapter unfolds. This is redemption price. Uh, um, yeah, well, I say redemption price. If if there is a valuation that has to be paid on a person, not not always, but if there's a valuation that has to be paid, like for example, we're going to see later on the firstborn. You can't vow for them. They're already the Lord's. Okay. And so, but you have to redeem them. So if I have a firstborn son, zero to five and I redeem him, then I'm going to pay this price, for example. Redeem him. Redeem, buy him back from God. From the service or whatever? The right, right, okay. right. Because all the firstborn are the Lord's. Right. Animal, person, fruit, all of that. So you can't really, you can't, and I guess whichever one comes first would, would be that. Um, but, you, but, you have to, but you have to pay a certain amount to, to redeem them back um, from, from, from the temple. Yeah. So in Israel, a man may make a vow of dedication to Yahweh of himself or of a member of his family. Um, if, he, if he pledges his son's work, he can redeem them back before Jubilee. Uh, Non-Levites could not serve within the sanctuary grounds. So a person may be released or freed from the work by making a payment uh, to the sanctuary. All right. So there you go. What happens if, he re if a guy really wants to make a vow? He, he's, he, there's a real need. He really wants to make a vow, but he can't afford the... Because these are pretty expensive prices. I mean, generally, it's thought that, uh, that a person was paid a shekel a month. Yeah. So you're looking at some pretty... 
steep prices on people. If you're going to make a vow, even women. Even women. So <laughs> you're going to get me in trouble, aren't you? I really spent 10 minutes <laughs> and you just gone. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's done now. <laughs> out, of, out of the mouth and into their fury. That's all that is. So um, if you, you, have, uh, you have then uh, a guy who really wants to make a vow who's, who's poor. And he can't afford those prices. Very few people could, which is another barrier to making vows. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, Jesus would say later. But he really wants to make a vow. What happens? What does it say in verse 8? He's presented to the priest, and what happens? Fair market value. No. He pays The priests assess what he can afford. Very similar to what we've seen before. Yeah. In, in all the sacrifices, there's, there's that grace being, being given. That's right. There's always a provision for those who don't have the material means to do an act of uh, piety, basically, is what this is. God makes provision for the poor here. But the standard is these valuations we see in verses 1 through 8. All right. Look at verse 9. We'll, we'll keep going here. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. What kind of animal do we have in view here at the beginning? What, what, is it, what does it say? That may be offered. That may be offered. What are we talking about? Maybe offered. If it's a sacrifice. As a sacrifice, right? That would be a clean animal. Sheep, goat, bull. Oxen, cow, whatever, bovine. Whatever that clean animal is going to be, he can offer that. And then it goes into an unclean animal, like a camel or a donkey. Um, clean animals could be sacrificed. And when it comes time to hand over the animal, what does it say? He can't do what? He can't exchange it or... Okay, what's the difference? Well... In the, in the language, the exchange would be, uh, oh, let me get this right. The exchange would be a different type of animal. I really like this ram. He's going to really produce a lot for me later on. I, I made a mistake giving him. Let me substitute out this goat buck, you know, whatever. No, not on an animal that's sacrificed. Uh, an exchange would be of like kind. A substitute would be of different kind, right? That's kind of, kind of the idea. You can't, you can't swap them out. It's that animal, the one you've devoted. Did I mix that up? I meant to say it the other way and wished I would have. The, 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 the issue is you can't swap out the same kind of animal and you can't swap out different animals for the one you've devoted. If you've devoted it, if you've dedicated it to the Lord, that's the one. It's now holy. No redemption is possible once the animal has been donated. 
What happens if he tries to get tricksy with it? He tries to swap out something. Oh, never knows. They're both white. Add 20%. Really? If he thinks he's been too generous and tries to exchange it or substitute it through some sort of deceit, what happens? Both of them are now holy. Would that be an incentive not to try games? You're losing both animals now, Bubba. <laughs> right? It's a human tendency to, to promise God much when we need Him, but to thank Him little when He meets our need. What about animals that cannot be sacrificed because they are unclean? What does it say in 11 through 13? What, how do they handle them? It's up to the priest. It's up to the priest for what? Okay, good or bad here means valuable or not valuable. That's kind of the way that, that the language works. But to do in what way? Why are we why are we valuing the animal now? What's he doing? I made an offer of this donkey, this camel. And I really like the donkey. He's been a good donkey for me, and I think I was a little too generous in my gift. I want him back. What does it say with the unclean animal? What can you do? You can redeem it, and how? You add 20%, right? It's a 20% restocking fee. 20%. I get it stocked. Thank you. <laughs> I worked on that all night <laughs> for this moment. All right. Let's look at laws dedicating property as holy to the Lord. 14. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then his valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But... If he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it, is when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of valuation for, uh, for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord." In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. What in the world? My head was spinning. How about yours? What's going on here? What's the core issue? Land and other items to be redeemed. Okay, land and other items. What kind of other items? What does it start with? House. house. Why would you devote a house to the sanctuary? That seems quite odd. Don't you think? Where did the, where did the priest live? Yeah. These are city houses, right? 
Yes? City houses? Uh, it's different than the sale of a house. If any house is in the hands of the sanctuary, it can be redeemed at any time, plus the 20%. So this is a, hey, I want to make a vow, and I'm going to dedicate some housing to the priesthood. Oops. I don't want it. That's my summer home. My kids missed the view out in the, in the market, whatever. I want to get it back. Restocking. Uh, it's 20%. And yet... The, in verse 16 through 18, it starts to use the word dedicates. He dedicates. Um, let me see here. Which verse? verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, this is not just a mere vow. This is like a, I guess they're tears of vows. Um and this one is devoted purposefully and willfully vowing the land to the sanctuary. I just want to donate this land to the sanctuary. And when he dedicates it, the priest evaluates it. They can do anything they want. They can keep it and use it to produce food for the priesthood, or they can sell it and put the money in the sanctuary. It's the same kind of deal. But this becomes part of the priestly uh, property, and they can do with it what they want. He can't get it back in Jubilee. It's, it's a done deal. It's valued two ways. How's it valued? We'll get technical. How's it valued? The time to Jubilee. Time to Jubilee, that's the second way. What's the first way? Proportionate to its seed. So Proportionate to its seed. How much it can grow, how much it's going to cost to plant the thing. All of that is, is taken into, into, um, into uh, account, uh, account of how you evaluate the property. The thing I find interesting about this is the use of the word Homer. What is a homer? Six bushels or two <laughs> nice. Study Bible comes to save the day. <laughs> I love textual notes. All of them. Uh, homer is a, is a word in Hebrew that's derived from the word donkey. And the idea is... He always calls me... It's written, the, 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 uh, the idea is that... However much a donkey can carry in seed, that's going to be about the amount that we're talking about, right? So that's, I just wanted to bring out Homer. Okay. Can he get this back? Can he get this land back? Yes. How? Jubilee? He can redeem it. He can redeem it up until, up until... Statute of limitations on redemption is. What does it say? Till the year of Jubilee. Isn't that odd? Every other time we see Jubilee, we see things going back to people for free. And yet, in this case, if he devotes this land, if this is land that is dedicated to the temple, he can redeem it until Jubilee. And after Jubilee, there is no redemption for this land. That's its willful dedication to the tabernacle. All right. What if he doesn't redeem the land, but sells it to someone else after he's dedicated it? He doesn't redeem it, but he sells it to somebody else. They work it. They do their thing. Incidentally, can you sell your land in Israel? If it's your personal land, can you sell it? 
Come on. You can. How? Can, can you can you sell your land? You can sell it to your family, can't you? Mm, so, no. I thought there was no personal. Like it was a, all claim. It's a lease until jubilee. It's a lease until uh -huh. jubilee. So if he sells it to somebody after he's dedicated, is he really selling it? Does sale really mean sell here? <laughs> Does all really mean all here? Um, sale in Israel is a leasing by function of the year of jubilee. So if he sells it to somebody after he's dedicated it to the temple and he knows that he's got to redeem it before Jubilee, what does that tell you? What is he doing? He's saving on the work of somebody else, right? If they're growing crops to purchase the land, hey, I'll buy this land from you, let me get a bumper crop and I'll sell it to you, or I'll give it to you as, as purchase price for this land and then I'll, I'll make money off it the rest until Jubilee, well, all he needs is a good bumper crop one year and he's redeemed the land. He's making money off of somebody else to redeem property that he supposedly dedicated to the Lord, is the idea here. It's tricksy. And God says, no, we're not doing that. If it looks like a dishonest thing, he's not working to redeem it. He's benefiting from someone else's work. If he's caught, what happens? can't redeem it. He forfeits it. You make a vow to the Lord. If you're deceitful about how you fulfill the vow, you forfeit. Right? The thing you wanted through deceit, the appearance of a vow being fulfilled, and not having it cost you anything, it, it will cost. You forfeit the inheritance. You forfeit what was yours to do with what you wanted at the beginning? Why make the vow if you're going to deceive the Lord? Right? Kevin, yes, sir. When um, in the New Testament of Acts, when the two people mm -hmm. sell a field and give it to the Lord, mm -hmm. is this what is, is referenced? Is this kind of why they were just. The concept is. The concept is. Deceiving the Lord by having the appearance of being, you know, pious. pious. Thank you. By being pious. And deceiving, being pious horizontally. Nobody else knows what's going on in the heart, but God does. And so that's why he punished Ananias and Sapphira. It's the same principle here. Um, all right. If he doesn't originally own the land, let's say he buys or leases land from somebody else for that 50 years and then dedicates that lease to the tabernacle. What happens in Jubilee? It goes back to goes back to the original owner. So we still have that in play. All right. Look at verse 25. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. There. I just wanted you to be aware of that. So that when you get twenty geras, you've got a, you've got a shekel. Nathaniel has all this money that he's collected for all this money, a few coins, that he's collected from, you know, people give him, I went to Spain. And they gave him these, you know, what's it called, Lira? Lira? What's it in Spain? Euro? Not Euro. Are they all in Euros now? They need to leave that. They need. Yeah. It used to be actual national money before they caved into the pressure of communal socialism in Europe. They were trying to make their shekels the same. Well, now they have a temple, don't they? Um, all right. 
Look at verse 26. <clears throat> but a firstborn of animals, which is a firstborn belongs, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. The remaining statutes here deal with involuntary offerings that cannot be dedicated to the Lord because they are already His, and people or objects that are dedicated to Him but cannot be redeemed. Stuff that's already His or stuff that's dedicated that cannot be redeemed. That's what the remaining stuff deals with. And we look at firstborn animals here. Why can't they use firstborn animals as a subject of a vow? It says it very clearly. It's already His. You can give me what's already mine, right? The firstborn automatically belongs to Yahweh. Clean animals fit for sacrifice cannot be redeemed. But unclean animals that are firstborn can be redeemed. What happens if the original owner refuses to redeem it? Then it's sold. Then it's sold and the money's used where? Probably in the temple. Probably in the sanctuary. You're right. All right, verse 28. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction for mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Now that's an odd twist to put in the middle of this section. What does devoted mean? Devoted has two terms. Two ways of being used. One, we see it here, devoted to destruction at the very end. The other is devoted uh, to the Lord, to a saint. So there's a positive way of being devoted, and there's a negative way of being devoted. You'll see this is if we go to Joshua one of these days. Certain cities of the Canaanites are devoted to the Lord for destruction. Jericho, most certainly, devoted to destruction. It's holy to me. Don't touch the stuff, Achan. Don't touch it. It's mine. It's devoted. You see that whole idea uh, in there. And you see it here. Devoted things. Devoted relates to a solemn and strict vow. The object of the vow is absolutely irredeemable. It's irredeemable. You can't add 20% to this. It's not coming back. All right, look at 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And that's the way the book ends. What are we talking about with tithes? What are we talking about here? What is tithing? Now everybody in Christian churches get a little clamped. Talking about tithing. This is kind of a tax. Kind of a tax? I would say, I would say this is different than giving. Because giving is kind of devoted. Tithe is kind of a tax. It's okay. Automatic Can you redeem it? So, no. You have percentage of what? What can you redeem? You're right. Your tithe. Oh, your tithe of what? 
Notice the other one. Land, uh, the seed from the land, fruit of the trees, that can be redeemed. So food, if we say, oops, on the food, we gave too much or we didn't, we need that back to eat. Pay 20%, you got it. Animals, not so much. They're not so much. How we determine the tithe of animals? Well, it says everything that passes under the shepherd's staff. And so the idea was... You hold a staff, you line them up in the chute, and you count them off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And it's not, you're not to go in and say, okay, let's space these just right. Give me the gimpy ones every tenth one. and we'll. No, it's a random thing. It's an objective thing. And it's whether good or bad, that tenth one goes to the Lord. If you got nine sheep... We're not doing a tithe this year. Right? It's very objective, very seemingly random, but it's good or bad. There's not, it's not uh, every tenth of your best sheep. No, it's just a tenth of the thing. And it goes to sacrifices. It goes to supporting the priesthood, those kinds of things. They can't predetermine the order. They can't exchange or substitute. You can't say, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to substitute a bad one in. Can we switch the line real quick? Can't do that. If you try it, both the animals are holy and dedicated to the sanctuary. It's a fair and objective means of selection. And then we get to verse 34. That's it. This is all from God. And it concludes chapter 27, which is the last code in Leviticus. And it serves to conclude the entire book of Leviticus by recalling that these are given by God. It's His revelation to His people. And that's the way the book ends. Vows. Valuation of people, animals, and property. To support the sanctuary, right? Isn't that what all this is about? There are two points I, that I would like to pull from here. There's other stuff. First, it's the funding of the sanctuary. Presenting tithes provided a way for the Israelites to acknowledge that the Lord was their king and had provided for their material needs. It was also a way for them to provide for those who led the people in worship and for the needy. <clears throat> Does it still apply today? Should we, should we go through every dollar bill we have, hold out a calculator, and every tenth one we put aside for... Is that, is that what the New Testament calls for? Are we under the Mosaic Covenant in regards to tithing? It is my position, and there are smart guys who disagree with me, that I love anyway, even though they are horribly wrong, that it does not. We are not under law. We're under grace. And the issue of giving in the New Testament is not one of counting beans. The issue of giving in the New Testament is from the heart. I would argue that it's even more than what's required here because He requires everything of us. Since Christians are no longer under the Sinai Covenant, the command to tithe does not automatically apply as stated here. However, the underlying principles continue. Paul instructs the church at Corinth and us to return material blessings to those who lead them and care for them in the body and to the needy. 
like the Hebrews, why would we do this? Because we're so overwhelmed with the grace of Christ. Out of thankfulness. Out of thankfulness we're to do this. Not, gosh, I hope they see me put something in the plate so they don't think I'm a cheapskate. Right? It's our thankfulness. And yet at the same time, there's this, there's, we're pendulum swingers. We go all the way, I'm under grace, I don't need to do it, I don't give to those people. Or we go all the way over here to legalism, you ain't getting a tent, why aren't you giving a tent? You know you better tithe on gross if you want a gross blessing. <laughs> Have you heard that one? <laughs> Look, I'm telling you. It gets crazy. We make everything extreme. We don't give because we're under grace and we give and expect it and counting their beans because we're tithe, means tenth. Look, under New Testament instruction, we're to give out of the abundance of what we've been given. We're to give proportionally, systematically, cheerfully out of what He's given us. That could mean for somebody who's poor, giving 2% and that's a great gift for them. Right? It could mean somebody who's wealthy giving 10%, that's nothing. David said when he was buying land to build the tabernacle, the temple, um, the guy said, look, I'm just going to give it to you. Please take, take this land of mine so that God can be honored on my property that I've given. I want to be part of that. And David said, no, no, no. I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord that costs me nothing. That's the heart. That's the heart that we have to do it. And that may mean 2%. I mean, we're all on wide spectrum here. And out there too. We're all on wide spectrum. And for us to... It may be your allowance money at $10 a week is my... You know. Look, it's part of Christian life to be generous. That's part of it. But that doesn't mean that my generosity necessarily is going to look like your generosity. We're all on different scales, but the point is to be doing something because it flows from the heart that is so overwhelmed by the generosity of Christ. I won't give if it doesn't cost me anything. Far be it for me to do that. I don't talk about tithing much in here, but this is, this is just my position on it. All right, okay. Y'all can, we'll move on. Second... And here's where I really want to land, although that's important. This chapter emphasizes the point that a vow must be kept. We don't see vows in the New Testament, do we? We don't see that very often. I think, I think there's one or two. But this isn't a practice that they really engaged in in the early church. It wasn't a big deal. In fact, Jesus encouraged them not to make vows. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. There's one vow, though that's incredibly important, that we all have to make. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes, who was not Apollos, it was Solomon, <laughs> in Ecclesiastes 5.5, it says, It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And Jesus applies this principle in Luke 14. Turn there with me if you would. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Can you guess where I'm going? <clears throat> I 
Now great crowds accompanied him. That's cool. That's church growth right there. Great crowds accompanied him. Did he throw out the welcome mat? And he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, count the price of the vow, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able <clears throat> with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus takes this principle and warns us that committing our lives to him is not to be done lightly. It must be done wholeheartedly. There's no turning back. Quickly, I know we're running late. Bonhoeffer talked about this in, this terms, in these terms of cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace meant that the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner who does not really repent and certainly doesn't depart from sin, that's cheap grace. It's the kind of grace that frees us from battling sin. It's the kind of grace that we bestow on ourselves. Bonhoeffer says it this way, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's cheap grace, and I think that is a virus in the church today. We love to hear about the cross, we love to hear about forgiveness of sin, and yet we don't want to look like Him. We fight against holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We fight against it. Costly grace, in contrast, is costly because it calls us to follow Him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. In costly grace, we are both the offeror and the vow offering. It is for this reason that Paul says to the Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, not your good feelings, not your, not your knowledge of covenantal theology, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If we're not actively killing sin, forsaking all others to follow Him, it doesn't matter how many great church authors I can quote. It doesn't matter how many hours I clock at the food pantry. He's called us to be holy, to fulfill our vow. No turning back. Salvation is a work of God alone. 
I am very convinced that sanctification is the work of God and man. The new heart renewed, working. And if that's not going on, that's a red flag about whether the first part has happened. If we can comfortably sit in sin, raising our hands in church, whatever we're doing, and not be actively pursuing Jesus, that's a red flag. Fulfill the vow you've made. That's what I get from this. I know we're running way long. What, what, any, any comments, questions, fruit to be thrown? Make sure it's a tenth. <laughs> All right, I'll pray. Father, please help us to be honest with ourselves. To review our lives according to what you've called us to be. And God, none of us is perfect. We all struggle in various ways. But the heart check is, do I hate my sin? And am I moving forward looking like Jesus, repenting, um, striving for holiness, praying for the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart to make me more and more like Him every day? Am I actively doing that? I pray that you would grant us repentance where we're not doing that. It would cause us once again to be renewed and to seek out the gift of Christ, not just the forgiveness of sins, but a call to new life in Him. We've been bought with a price. It's not us who lives anymore. Thank you that it's Christ who lives in us to help us fulfill the vow we've made. And as we bring this book to a close, remind us again of the massive cost of grace that you would give your only son for your people. Make that apply to me. Make that apply to those in this room that we would love you more. And out of a heart of generosity, out of a heart of thankfulness, we would pour out our lives to serve you, to serve your people, and to bring the ministry of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.